0: Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. My name's Michael, and I'm one of the pastors here. In uh, in just a minute, we're going to go into our time of teaching. Uh, before we do that, uh, just a couple uh, important announcements as we kind of round, kind of leave the fall and heading into like Christmas season. And so on. First of all, is that uh, if you're new here in Rocky Peak, you may not know this, but from time to time, I'll send out a ministry update letter. Just important things going on. I always send out one out uh, this time of the year, just with important information. It's our Christmas services, our uh, generosity initiative, our initiative for the poor that we'll be doing uh, in December, uh, year in finances, things like that. And so this Friday, I'll be sending that out. So if you're on mailing us the email list, you'll get that. Uh, If you don't, uh, if you're not on our uh, email list, you can sign up just inside your program. There's a little Connect card, fill that out, make sure we have that information. We'll have hard copies as well out on the patio next week. And so I just want to make sure you're aware that's coming this friday right then secondly as we come to the end of our fall life group session uh first of all uh we just want to thank those of you who are leaders and hosts in fact if you're like a leader or a host of a life group would you stand up right now we just want to say thank you for the job that you do (laughs) We, have, we appreciate you so much, and we know our, our church really. Uh, I often say to our leaders and hosts that we rise no higher than they are, and it's really true. Without them, we don't have small groups and we don't grow as a church, and so I just want to thank you. But also, as we come to the end of the fall session, I want to let you all know what's going to be happening in winter session. So, if you've been here the last couple of years, you know the last couple of winters we've done an all church study together whether it's uh, uh, the Rooted a couple years ago or Loving People last year. And so this, uh, this January, we're going to be doing that once again. And the topic on the table this time is, uh, is serving sacrificially, uh, discovering our purpose. And so this course flows out of our mission statement. It's the third mark of a passionate Christ followers. We've, we talked about pursuing God a couple years ago, then we did loving people last winter, and now we're going to be doing serving sacrificially. So the core idea of this series is that when a man or woman comes to Jesus, as I often say here at the weekend services, that we discover that not only have we been chosen before time to be forgiven and to be adopted into God's family, not only to receive the gift of his Holy Spirit who leads, guides, transforms us, empowers us to become the people we are created to be, but we also discover that each of us has been chosen before time to play the, an important role in carrying out Jesus' kingdom mission to bring, from, from bringing heaven to earth. And so what we're gonna be doing in this series is kind of exploring kind of God's call for all of us as followers of Jesus to live a life of of love that leads to a life of service but then specifically what does that look like for each of our specific assignments as followers of Jesus and how has God shaped us over our entire lifetime in terms of our spiritual gifts, our heart, passions, our natural abilities, uh, our unique personality, and our life experiences to prepare us to carry out this mission. So very excited about this. Uh, it's the next next step for us as a church. And so just want to make sure that you're aware that's coming. Now, if you've been here the last couple of years, as we've gone through rooted pursuing God-loving people, they've been pretty demanding series. Uh, we've had like a five-day-a-week study format. We will probably not be doing it this time. will be much, uh, kind of less demanding, uh, but we will be using one book, like excerpts of that book, not the whole book, that we're going to be reading as part of this study. And it's a book uh, that's called The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. So some of you may have heard of that. Some of you may have even read it. But it's an amazing book about discovering God's purpose in and, and these areas of giftings and so on. So uh, we'll give you more information as we get closer. If you're not currently in a live group, you'll want to uh, join one. Uh, then we'll be able to do that as we move towards January. Okay, so just want to make sure you kind of everyone's up to speed on uh, what's happening, and so we can begin to be praying and beginning to prepare our hearts for that. Very excited about that series. All right, so. Uh, as we, uh, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. So inside your program is a green and white message note sheet we use every week for our time of teaching. I know if you're a regular here, you know that. But if you're new, that may be news to you. So encourage you to take that out. And then if you're ready to go, I'm going to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay. God, we're just hungry to be here. Uh, your place, uh, your leadership, um, underneath the leadership of your Holy Spirit, and God, we just we are just hungry to hear from you. God, we come not to listen to any teacher. was well, it's Dre or me or Tim at outside guests. Like we come to hear you. And you've said, call no man teacher, for you have one who's your teacher, and he's the Lord. And so God, we just acknowledge that it's only when you speak, only when you open our eyes, that we see truth and that our lives are transformed. And so we pray you'd come today in the power of your spirit. You promised that the spirit would come and be our teacher. He would lead us into all truth. And so we pray that today you'd open our eyes so we could listen and follow you into the future you have for each of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, our story today starts in the Capitol. And it's it's a time of transition. It's a time of change because there's been a, A political change at the top of the nation it's leading into a a new era and it's an era of growing uncertainty perhaps even danger in the last 50 years this nation has been growing it's been thriving it's been a time of prosperity and peace and increasing power but with this new political change at the top All bets are off. No one knows what to expect. And no one questions that there is danger looming on the horizon. And perhaps it's because of this time of transition. Perhaps he will never know why. But he'll never forget where he was. He'll never forget where where he was standing, what he was thinking, what he was wearing. It's like this moment will be forever emblazoned on his mind. He'll never forget the moment it happens, what he sees, what he hears. It's a moment that will change his life forever, and not only his life, but the life of the nation. Well, today, we continue our series that we've been in for the last five or six weeks called Prophets, Priests, and Kings, Life Lessons from the Nation of Israel. And uh, for those of you who are new, what we're doing in this series is kind of going back in time, um, doing kind of a rewind in time, going back to what I describe as the Kingdom Era of Israel. Now, the Kingdom Era of Israel started with the rise of the very first king. His name was King Saul. Uh, a little before 1,000 BC, 1,000 years before Jesus, it's going to last a little over 400 years, four centuries, until the year 586 or 587, depending on your favorite scholar. Uh, when, the, when, the, when the kingdom is going to come to an end, the final destruction and siege of the city of Jerusalem, the capital city. And the reason we're going back into this era that I call the era of prophets, priests, and kings is not only to better understand the story of Israel, and not only then in turn to understand the, the big picture story that God is telling in the Bible that God is writing for all history, for our lives included, but specifically to go back and highlight some of the key life lessons that flow out of the lives of these leaders, these prophets, priests, and kings, They really speak to us today about what it means to be a, what it means to be a follower of Jesus today. And so today we come to the life of one of the, the most important and most famous prophets in all kingdom era. And his name is Isaiah. And his name, it means Yahweh is salvation. And uh, once again, we're going to look at one of the kind of key passages from his prophecies. But before we jump into this kind of key turning point in the, in the history of Israel, um, I, I, we, we need to set it up with some kind of backstory of his life and time so there in your note sheet you have a section called isaiah the life and time so let's spend a few minutes setting this up so isaiah was called to be a prophet to speak for god in a time of great transition in fact he is the opening man in this story we learn from his writings that isaiah was called to be a prophet to israel uh, in the year that a very famous king, uh, a, a king named Uzziah, that he died. And so we know from uh, secular history that this was in 740 BC. So you may want to write down a couple of dates just to kind of orient yourself. So King Uzziah dies in 40, uh, 740 BC. Now, he is a very powerful king. He's a very successful king. Um, he has led the king for the last 50 years. He's the most successful king Uh, since King Solomon reigned, about 150 years before. And so King Uzziah leads the nation to a time of prosperity, of peace, of expanding borders. It was a time of economic boom, if you will. And so when he dies, it ushers in a time of major transition, of uncertainty, unchanged, just like the man in the opening story. And so one of the reasons for this uncertainty was that there was a growing superpower in the Middle East. And the name of the superpower was Assyria. And so Assyria was starting to flex its muscles, expand its borders. In fact, within 18 years of King Uzziah's death, 18 years after Isaiah is called to speak for God, In the year 722 B.C., Assyria will come into the region, kind of around Israel, and they will attack the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, we're in the divided kingdom era. You have Israel in the north with 10 tribes, Judah in the south with the two tribes, the capital of Jerusalem. So uh, Assyria will attack the northern kingdom and completely devastate them, wipe them out, and take all the people away into exile, never to return. And so this is a time, I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine that you're living in Judah, the southern kingdom, with the capital, Jerusalem. And this superpower has just invaded the kingdom of the north of you and completely wiped it out. This would be like for us, let's say that in 20 years, China or Russia invaded North America and took over Canada and now are sitting on our borders. You are getting nervous is a very powerful enemy, they have shown their might, they have flexed their muscles, you know it's a matter of time until they invade you. And so this was the time that Isaiah was called into ministry, a time of great transition. And at the start of this era in 740 BC, when King Uzziah dies, it's in that year that that Isaiah is called to be a prophet. And this is the experience he had that we described in the opening story. It was a life-changing moment he describes it in chapter 6 of his prophecies and he says that that one day that all of a sudden he had this amazing vision and uh, the vision takes place in the temple of god and we're not sure whether he means the actual temple in jerusalem he has this vision or whether he's taken sort of into the throne room of heaven we're not sure but in this vision it's completely all-encompassing, I'm sure maybe he couldn't even tell, who knows, but it's all-encompassing when he, he, he's taken into the presence of God and he sings, he sees Yahweh, the great king, sitting on a high throne. And it is just amazing. I mean, the king is full of glory and power and he's got these incredible angelic beings, we call them seraphim that are floating around him. They have six wings, right? Kind of scary. Six wings. They've got a couple that are covering their bodies for modesty, a couple that are covering their face because they can't even take the glory of God and a couple they are just hovering. <laughs> it's awesome design. Uh, and so they're, they're hovering there and they're intifinately calling out to one another, Holy, 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 it's surrounding. And when, they, when the voices call out, their voices are so powerful. It's like the North Ridge earthquake. I mean, the whole place is shaking as they speak. And the whole temple is filled with smoke as incense from the altar goes up representing the prayers of God's people. And it's just this awesome scene of glory and power. And these antiphonal, these, uh, these angels are calling back to one another. Holy, holy, holy the whole, uh, is the Lord, Yahweh, God Almighty. He's the king of all creation. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah is just blown away by this, and he's just scared to death. And he goes face down, and he has this amazing sense of not only how big and awesome and glorious and holy God is, but how unholy he is and how he is, going, uh, is, is about to be wiped out. Because of, he's not holy. He has a sense of his own sin, his own unworthiness. And, and so he says out loud, he says, woe to me, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in a nation of unclean lips. I've seen the king. He said, I'm undone. It's over. I'm a goner. And in that moment, Yahweh gives a nod to one of the angels, and they fly to the altar and they take this burning coal and they put it on Isaiah's lips and they cleanse him. And this awesome scene, Yahweh turns to the heavenly court and he says, who will go for us? We need a messenger. And Isaiah just caught up in the moment says, how about me? And then God begins to give him the message he's to bring to this rebellious nation. Now, what's interesting is that in most of the prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, when they have these amazing experiences of the presence of God, they start their prophecy with this story because that's where their journey as a prophet began, with the vision of God. But Isaiah doesn't tell his, start his book that way. He doesn't tell his story until chapter six. It's almost like he wants to set it up with like, let me tell you the mess I got myself into. And the opening five chapters, we have a description of the rebellion, the treachery, the sin of Israel that he was called to speak to. And especially in chapter 1, we have almost like an indictment where Yahweh brings charges against his people, almost like in a court of law. And that's where we're going we're to start our journey today. I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. You have your Bibles, you have your apps. there in your note sheet, you have a section called Isaiah the Indictment. And so Isaiah starts his prophecy not with the vision of God, but with the, the indictment of God against the nation. So it starts off with an introductory verse. And he says, this is the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of four kings. Uzziah, we just mentioned him. Remember, it was in the year Uzziah died, that, that this vision happened, apparently earlier in the year. Uh, and then Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So let's just set the stage. This opening verse is telling us kind of the when, where, who, you know, kind of the newspaper uh, reporter type questions. So this is prophecy of Isaiah, who has these supernatural visions of God. Um, and he is operating during the reign of four kings, starting with Uzziah, ending with Hezekiah. These four kings reigned. Usiah uh, Hez- uh, died in 740 BC. You already have that date. He- Hezekiah is going to die in 680 BC. So 60-year ministry. And uh and these are kings who rule in Jerusalem of the southern kingdom. Alright, so I mean, we have Isaiah is the prophet. Uh, he's, he's prophesying in the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, during the reign of these four kings. And now we go to the indictment. God's indictment. I want you to think of almost like a courtroom scene uh, where God is going to call the witnesses in this cosmic drama that's playing out. And so Isaiah said, Hear me, O you heavens, and listen, O earth. So, So Yahweh is calling heaven and earth into this trial scene. And he says, For Yahweh has spoken, and here's the indictment, I reared children and I brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Some of you can relate. Uh, the ox knows its master and the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. Um, didn't have a clue. My people do not understand. And he says, woe, sinful nation. Now, this word woe is a powerful word. Uh, we've talked about it once before in this series, but this is, this is a word of danger. It's a word of impending warning. It's a word of doom. Interestingly, this is a very popular word in the prophets, like you are, you are in serious trouble. But it's also a word that Jesus often used uh, as the ultimate prophet. Uh, Woe to you are rich. Woe to you are well-fed. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And so he says, uh, God says, Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. Now in these first four, five chapters, before he gets to his, his, the vision of his call, Isaiah is gonna lay out God's claim against Israel. And if we had time, we would go through, but we're gonna see like what I, I would describe as three categories of sin and rebellion." The first category I would call spiritual rebellion, kind of the pursuit of other gods. Right? A second category would be personal rebellion. Remember, Jesus said all the laws in the Old Testament are either uh, about loving God or loving people. And so uh, these sins of personal, uh, of personal sin uh, might be sins of, uh, uh, of sexual immorality, of drunkenness, um, of, um, of lying, of cheating, of stealing, just kind of, a, missed, kind of a, a taking advantage of your neighbor, not loving your neighbor. And then there's a third category of sin, which I would describe as social sin where uh, the nation is oppressing the poor, injustice in the courts, bribery of justice, uh, taking advantage of the weak like widows and orphans. And so in these opening, opening chapters, five chapters, we're gonna see all of that um, coming. We won't have time for that today. But um, he says, verse four, woe to a sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. And it says, at the core, this is the hard issue, that they have forsaken Yahweh. Remember, Lord, all caps means Yahweh. They've forsaken, yeah, that's the core issue. Uh, The word in Hebrew for forsaken is the same word for divorce. It's like they've divorced him. And uh, they've spurned the Holy One of Israel. It's interesting because this vision that Isaiah has just at the start of his ministry, it's gonna gonna inform his whole ministry. And his favorite name for God throughout all of his prophecies is the Holy One of Israel. That that day that he saw this changed his life forever, it's gonna change the life of the nation. And so he goes on, he says, they've turned their backs on him. And so as a result of this, uh, as a result of their rejection and the rebellion against God, their nation is falling apart. Does that sound familiar? Uh, all right, so what's, what's happened? Remember back in Deuteronomy 28, we talked about this last week, one of the most important chapters in all the Bible. In Deuteronomy 28, before they went in the promised land, Moses reminded them, you've entered into covenant with God at Sinai. And if you honor the covenant, God will bless you in every way. And he lists a long list of blessings. But if you rebel, then you will come under the curse, under the the wrath, under the judgment of God to, to draw you back. And so this is what's happened. And what we're going to see now is that Israel has got into full scale rebellion against the king, the holy king of Israel, Yahweh the king. And as a result, God has taken away the protections and other nations have come and ravaged them. And so so, uh, God is gonna compare their nation to a person who's been beaten up and left for dead at the side of the road. Uh, We believe that Isaiah wrote this opening chapter long into his ministry. And here's why. Remember I said that Assyria, the superpower, that they came in 722 BC and they destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, what we also know is that in 701 BC that King Sennacherib of Assyria invaded the southern kingdom and wiped out their cities burned them to the ground devastated them in fact he even came against jerusalem and was laying siege against the city and would have destroyed it apart from the supernatural intervention of god uh, due to the prayers of king hezekiah the last king in this list and so we're in a time where the the, the the nation has been devastated and ravaged by the enemy. They're like a person beat up and laying by the side of the road. Kind of like in the story of the Good Samaritan, the Jews have been beat up, unbandaged, lying there. Israel is like that. And it's a time when Assyria has come in, and all that's left is the nation, all that's left is the city of Jerusalem which has uh, been left by God's mercy, by his supernatural intervention. And uh, he'll use the image that it's like a, a harvest time when they would go out to harvest the field. The fields are completely harvested. The fields are empty. And all you would see are these huts where the harvesters would sleep during the, the season. It's like the land has been devastated except for these huts. And so he's going to combine all these images. And so he says... Uh, in verse five, why should you be beaten anymore? You're like a person that's been beaten. Why do you persist in your what? Rebellion. Keyword rebellion. Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there's no soundness. Only wounds and welts and open. Like you've rebelled against me. The discipline is come. Like when will you say enough? When will you say uncle? When will you turn back? It's, it's like you're lying there with open wounds and welts, open sores. They're not clinched or, or bandaged They're not they're, or soothed with olive oil. He says, your whole country, it's desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before your eyes. They're laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion, which is a, a metaphor for Jerusalem. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a, vin, in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege unless the Yahweh Almighty had left us some survivors, remember that, that supernatural intervention with Hezekiah, we would have become like what? Sodom. And he said, and we would have been like Gomorrah. Now, of course, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were infamous in Israeli history. In fact, they were so famous that they, they became like symbols of the ultimate sin. Like when we, we talk today of like Hitler, like, I mean like nothing's worth it. Hitler. And Sodom and Gomorrah had become like their Hitler. Back in Genesis 18 and 19, the city had been completely destroyed by God, fire from heaven. Uh, during the time of Abraham because of their ongoing sin of many different kinds, sexual immorality, oppression of the poor. They became like symbols of the ultimate evil. Are you with me? And what's powerful is that God is saying, unless of my mercy, you would have been destroyed like them. And in fact, you are like them. He's going to take these ultimate evil titles, Sodom and Gomorrah, and apply it to his own covenant people. This is how far... They had gone. Their sin had gone. They're ripping each other off. They're abusing one another. They're robbing from widows. They're robbing from the poor. They're bribing. They're committing, they're, they're sending hit squads to take people out to take their land. They're stealing each other's wives. They're involved in sexual immorality. They're drunkenness. The rich are oppressing the poor. They're committing, they're worshiping other gods. This is just a nightmare. And The faithful wife has become the whore of Yahweh. And so he uses these terms in verse 10. Hear the words of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says Yahweh. Now catch this, in the midst of their rebellion, in the midst of God's ju- the destruction of their nation, the question is, how are they responding to this discipline? How are they responding to their, this, this challenge of their rebellion? They're responding by going to church. They're not responding by repentance, changing their ways. They're responding with religious ritual. They're going to temple. They're offering sacrifices. They're praying for God's protection. They're praying for God's blessing. They're celebrating all the high holy days. Sabbaths, the new moon festival. All things prescribed by the law of Moses. They're doing Passover. They're doing Feast of Tabernacles, they're doing Feast of Weeks. They're going through all the religious, they're worshiping God, they're going, they're raising their hands in prayer, but they're not doing the one thing that would have led to their salvation, which is repentance. And what God's gonna say is enough of this. You see, the sacrifices of God that that were commanded in the Old Testament were not only a good thing, they were a God thing but they were always designed to be a sign of Israel's love and faith and trust and obedience. They were never to be a substitute for rebellion, to cover up. And what God's gonna say is your offerings are detestable to me. And when you come in the temple, you think this makes it better to worship me? It's like trampling of holy space. This is like uh, a man who's, who's uh, committing and having, having an ongoing affair but brings flowers to his wife to cover it up. The flowers are appreciated until she discovers the affair. Then the very flowers don't make things worse, they make things, uh, make things better, they make it worse. And this is what God is gonna call them at. And he says in verse 11, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says Yahweh, I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you appear before me, like at the temple, who's asked of you this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing your meaningless, or in the Hebrew, worthless offerings. Your incense is what? detestable, they're going through the motions, they're worshiping, they're raising their hands, they're burning incense, representing their prayers, rising up to God. He says detestable to me. New moon, Sabbaths, convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, your new moon feasts, your appointed festivals, all these uh, high holy days. I hate with all my being. They become a burden to me and I'm weary of bearing them. And so when you spread out your hands in prayer, you ask me to bless, you ask me to protect, I'll hide my eyes from you. And even when you're offering many prayers, I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. There's murder in your society. There's violence in your world. And so God says, now here's what you need to do. Instead of this religious ritual, here's what needs to happen. You need to wash and make yourselves clean. In other words, turn from your sin and rebellion and truly repent. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. He gives some examples of social justice. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless, of orphans. Plead the case of the widow. Instead of taking advantage of them in court and ripping off their land, protect them. And so at this point in the story, like if we were to end it right here, this would be one depressing passage, would it not? This is closing prayer, I'll go home depressed. And honestly, as you read this passage, you wonder, so what's going to happen? Here's a nation with ongoing sin, ongoing rebellion, worshiping other gods, ripping each other off, taking advantage sexual immorality, a culture coming apart. God has brought his discipline. They're responding not with repentance but with religious ritual hypocrisy. And you wonder, what's going to happen next? What is God going to say next? And I think what I'd expect him to say is, so you're all goners. I'm sick of this. I've had it up to here. It's over. But he doesn't. Remember, I said this is like a courtroom scene. He's brought his indictment against, in the, as, with the witnesses of heaven and earth, all of creation against his people. He's brought his indictment, and they are they are judged and you expect it and you are going down. But what we're going to see next is blows my mind because what God is going to say is basically you're in deep trouble and if you go to judgment, you're going to be destroyed. So why don't we sit down together and see if we can settle this out of court. And so he says in verse 18 Come now and let us settle the matter says Yahweh and here's my offer though your sins are like scarlet in other words they're they're big they're bold they're obvious it's like a, you know like a, like you've you've got like a like a, say a woman with a white dress on and she's been saying i think i can eat a pomegranate safely <laughs> uh, and it just like breaks all over it's just like how do you get that out it's so obvious And it says, though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. What God is offering is he's saying, hey, sit down. I've got a way to wipe your record clean. I've got a way of um, settling this out of court. I've got a way of, of giving you complete amnesty for all crimes against King Yahweh, the high holy one of Israel. And he says, though they're as red as crimson, they'll be like wool, as clean as wool, like as, you know, new wool. And he says, here, here, so here's the offer. He says, if you're willing and obedient, in other words, enough of the religious ritual, but, but you're really willing to come back and be obedient, come under my leadership and, and enter back into covenant and keep covenant with me. He said, if you're willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. And I want you to catch this. This is what Yahweh wants. He's looking for a way to wipe their record clean so they can eat the good of the land, so he can protect them. and blo- That's his heart. He says, but if you resist and rebel, like you continue to head on this path that you're on, you'll be devoured by the sword. In other words, what you've seen already with Assyria coming in, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to get worse. It's going to go from bad to worse. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Amazing passage. This is a great intro, not only to the prophecies of Isaiah, but to the message of all the prophets. What I I describe as the two sides of God. And so today, what I want to do in this time we have together is I want to highlight two big picture principles that flow out of this passage about who God is, how our relationship with God works, what it takes to grow and thrive, um, and then come back at the end and ask one pointed question. And so, let's jump in. There on your note sheets, a section called Prophets, Priests, and Kings, Two Life Lessons. Now, the first lesson that jumps out at me is as I read through the prophets, and Isaiah's a great example, but I, I see this in all the prophets, is that God's grace is amazing. Um, it's an interesting thing to me that if I were to ask most people, even most Christ followers, when I when I say the word prophets, when you think of the Old Testament prophets, like what comes to your mind? I think that at least for many of us, if not most of us, we think of the prophets. We think of gloom and doom. We think of judgment. We think of the woes. We think of uh, condemnation, the the rebuke, and of course that's there, right? And so we, we've seen that today. We'll see that more later on, but. What always strikes me is the amazing grace of God when I read the prophets. In fact, for me personally, in my own spiritual journey, that probably God has used the prophets of Israel more than any other passage of Scripture to teach me the depth of his love and grace. I think for me, maybe this is because I grew up in a Christian home. So from the time you're knee high to a grasshopper, you've heard the story of Jesus dying for sinners. Saying, you know, it's like he's died for your sin. You're like four years old. and You haven't really been a big, a big sinner yet. Uh, and so you just kind of grow up with this story of God's amazing grace and his, you know, Jesus died. And you just kind of take it for granted. But it wasn't until I I grew older and I began to read the prophets, I felt like I began to understand the story of Jesus in new light. Because what I saw is this nation that's just living in flat-out rebellion and sin, oppressing, horrible things that they're doing. And And yet God continues to pursue them. God continues to run after them. God continues to make a way for them to come back. He's amazingly patient and kind and loving. He wants to restore them. And it's really through the prophets that I was able to come back and see Jesus and the New Testament and new eyes to understand what's going on there. And you really understand the prophets of Israel. We have to understand the big picture story of Israel. And as you know, this is one of my passions for us as a church, that we would not be a church that just knows bits and pieces of the story, just favorite verses, but we understand the big-picture story that God is telling that's so rich and so deep and so much bigger and higher and richer and fuller that we often understand. And to understand that story, we have to understand the story of Israel. And, you know, the story of Israel, I mentioned this last week, but the story of Israel... You know, we think of it when it starts when God rescues them from Egypt, right? From slavery in Egypt. And he brings them to Mount Sinai. We talked about this last week. And he enters into covenant there. You remember the story, Exodus 19, that God shows up, reveals himself with an amazing display of power and glory. He invites them into a relationship, very personal, intimate. I will be your God. You'll be my people. Much like marriage. We call it the covenant. And they're so impressed with his God and what he's done to rescue them. They say, I do, I want in. And God says, okay, like any relationship, there, there's, there's rules of relationship, there's formal or informal. Like I mentioned last week, this is why in marriages, when we take vows, you know, for better or worse, richer or poorer, uh, in sickness and in health, one of the most important of those vows is forsaking all others. And so this was the the first rule of relationship. No other gods. And they said yes. And it took them about less than three months to break that vow. They're they're like a young bride who gets married and is cheating on her husband within three months. While Moses is up on the mountain with God, they're worshiping the golden calf. And God comes down because of his amazing grace. He forgives them, doesn't divorce them. And Moses says to God... "Uh, I'm still getting to know you. I would love to know more about you. Can you show me your glory? Can you reveal more of who you are? And God says, well, I can't show you the whole thing. That would fry your eyes. He I can, I can give you a glimpse. And so how about tomorrow? Will tomorrow work for you? He says, yes. He says, tomorrow, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll pass by. I'll hide you in the rock. I'll kind of shield your eyes. I'll let you see like my back, metaphorically speaking. I'll, I'll let you see my back, not my front. And He said, when I go by, I'll proclaim my name. Yahweh and I'll tell you I'll reveal who I am so the next day God goes by and this amazing glory and he he proclaims his name and what he's the way he describes himself becomes the most famous passage in the Old Testament at least it's the most quoted Old Testament in the Old Testament of the Old Testament And I put it there on your note sheet. I don't know if you're familiar with this passage, but it's critical to understanding Yahweh. It's critical to understanding Jesus, who we are as followers of Jesus. And so in Exodus 34, the Lord, remember Lord, all caps, Yahweh, he comes down in a cloud before Moses and he stood there with him and he proclaimed his name, Yahweh. And he passes in front of, of Moses, proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh. And now he's going to reveal his name what does his name mean? What can you expect from this God? What's his core character? And he says, the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, and other very patient. And the catch is abounding in love and kindness. Not a little bit, but abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Like we saw today in Isaiah, this amazing offer. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And this is what I describe, call the two sides of God. That Yahweh reveals that he is this amazing God, this amazing grace, compassionate, faithful love, quick to forgive, slow to anger. This is who he is, and yet, because he's a good God, He holds us accountable for sin. You cannot have a good God who doesn't hold people accountable for sin. We could not, we would never want to live in a universe where evil goes unchecked. And so he's this amazing God, amazing grace, but he holds accountable for sin. The two sides of God. And so this is what we see in Isaiah here today, don't we? We see that this God who says, sit down in spite of all your sin and all your rebellion, the murder, the bribery, the oppression, the immorality, the drunkenness, the lies, the cheating, the oppression of the poor, in spite of all of that, I'm willing to cut you a deal. Settle out of court, wipe the record clean, total amnesty as if it never happened. The amazing grace of God. And yet there's a choice. And if you choose, you'll receive grace. But if you reject this offer, all that's left is the sword in judgment. The two sides of God. And it's interesting, of course, when Jesus comes, we, we see both of these sides in Jesus. And uh, we see this amazing grace of God that as we often say here at Rocky Peak, when Jesus came, that we learned that God always cares more where we're going than where we're coming from. It doesn't matter what you've done or what's been done to you, that if you want in, if you wanna come home, that Jesus is there to welcome us and say, I've come to make a way for your sins, though they're scarlet, to be white as snow. And he's actually going to give his life to make a way for us to come home. And so so that we can eat the best of the land. And of course, this messaging goes out in the New Testament. I love how Paul puts it in Romans. He talks about this incredible kindness of God in the face of human rebellion. And he says in chapter 2 and verse 4 that God's kindness is intended to lead you to what? Repentance. There's God's kindness to Israel. Well, let's sit down and talk about this. His kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. And so, the first principle we see is we see this amazing, God's grace is amazing. Now, but then we see the flip side, the flip side of God, and it goes like this that God's wrath is real. Number two, God's wrath is real. Now, this is a truth and this is a side of God that we often ignore today in, uh, uh, whether it's in culture at large or even in the church of Jesus. But this, what we see in the prophets, we see in Jesus and all as well, we'll see it later, but what we see in the prophets are these two sides of God that that this, this offer that God makes to Israel is very much the offer you see all through the prophets. And I want you to look at this again. It's uh, in chapter one, you yeah, open your Bibles, your apps, we'll go to verse uh, 19, and we see these two signs of God, and we see the second side about God's wrath. And so he said, in verse um, 19, he says, if you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the, be- the good things of the land. That's what God wants, and that's the amazing grace. But then you see the flip side of, of God, the, the other side. If you resist and rebel, you'll be what? devoured by the sword. This is what I call the flip side of God, that God's wrath is real. Now, what's interesting is you read through the prophets, and and often people would misunderstand this, if you don't read the prophets, you're not very familiar with this, but but that although God's wrath is real, that's not his first choice. In fact, he doesn't enjoy bringing judgment. Uh, One of the prophets calls it his strange work. Like it's not, this is not his preference. We, we see that in this passage. God is trying to rescue his people, but if you refuse, if you refuse to be healed, you refuse to be restored, there is no other option that you condemn yourself. And so, uh, a great example of this is in the prophet, of Eze- uh, prophet Ezekiel, who will come later in the kingdom era. We'll get to him in a couple weeks. But through uh, through the prophet Isaiah, God is speaking to the nation now. Many who have been taken into exile, and He says in verse eight, uh, in chapter eighteen, He says, "Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked?" God has this great way. Do I, do I enjoy that? Do I enjoy bringing judgment and the death on the wicked? And of course, the answer in context is no. And He says, "Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live?" This is what He wants. He wants to bless us. He wants to eat the best of the land. He wants us to turn from our our wicked ways and live. But if we refuse, there is no other option than to experience the judgment, what the Bible calls the wrath of God. Now here's what's interesting. What we see in the nation of Israel is what we see in human nature. Is it often when we are living in rebellion, and things are not going well, what we try to do is substitute religious ritual for true repentance in order to get right with God. It allows us to stay in our sin, but to kind of buy God off to get his blessing. And this is what Israel did, we see it very clearly today. They're rebelling, God's bringing judgment, their response is to go to temple. Offer sacrifices, say their prayers, raise their hands, burn their incense. But what we see today is that God is never interested in a substitute. That what God wants is real relationship. He doesn't want the affair to continue and us to bring flowers. He wants the affair to end and for us to return to our relationship with him. And we see this in Israel, but we also see it in our lives. Right? This, for, for example, for some of us here, and this is not to be an attack or a slam on any institution, but just a description of reality, if you will, that for some of us here, we've come out of a tradition where we live like hell all week long, and then we go and confess our sins and say a certain amount of prayers... And now we're good to go live like hell again. This is Israel. This is Israel. For others of us, we do it in a different way. Like here at Rocky Peak, we wouldn't do it that way. We would do it in a different way. We may be living in high-handed sin. In other words, we're living in clear sin. We're doing something. The Bible, the Word says this is wrong. It's super clear. And we're doing that. But we still come to church. And we engage in worship. We may even raise our hands. We'll take notes on a message. We'll say, we'll walk out and say, wasn't that an amazing message? Like when Dre's teaching. <laughs> I could really relate to those Marvel characters. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> and we'll go to a life group and we'll discuss our life group. And we may serve in kids ministry and we'll give some money. I will think we're doing fine. And the reality is, we're living in high handed sin and rebellion and thinking that God is okay with it because of our religious activity. And He's not okay with that. When you're living in a high handed sin and you're coming to church, you're not making things better, you're trampling the courts. When you're living in high-handed sin and you're serving God, you're not making it better. You're bringing flowers. And the problem is, he knows the affair is going on. And so what we learn from the prophets is that if we want relationship with God, it always requires a real relationship and a real repentance And if we choose to continue on living in rebellion, the wrath will come. The judgment will come. The discipline will come. And what's interesting is these warnings about the wrath of God are all through the New Testament. You know, many times people will say, I don't really relate to the God of the Old Testament. I love the God of the New Testament. Like the, the, the God of the Old Testament, he's got a wrath, you know, but when Jesus, came, he's got a love. And you know what? When I hear that, I always think, all you just told me is you've never read the New Testament. <laughs> or you've read it with blinders on, and we can do this, can't we? We can read with the blinders or filters. We, we, we have this kind of picture of, our, of how God should be. If I were God, this is how he would be. We have a picture of how God should be, and what that does is it causes us to read our Bibles with filters so we miss the obvious. Let me give you a great example of this. In, earlier we looked at this powerful passage in Romans 2 where Paul says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's beautiful, but the amazing grace of God, illustrated with Israel. But if you read that verse in context, Paul is writing to self-righteous people who say, yeah, God, uh, those people over there, they're really sinners, but uh, you know, thankfully I'm not like them. And uh, Paul says, hey, do you think that when you're condemning others and doing the same thing, do you think you're going to escape this kindness of God, this patience towards you is meant to lead you to repentance? And if you don't repent, uh, you don't mistake the patience of God for weakness. And this is what the whole context is on Romans 2 there in your note sheet. He says to this person, do, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? In other words, if you're in Israel's spot and God says, let's sit down and talk about this, that's amazing kindness. And you may mistake that for weakness, that he's weak, He'll let me get away from this. He said, no, don't make that mistake. He said, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up what? Wrath. wrath. Yeah. And if we had another hour here, we would just do a study of the wrath of God in the New Testament. You could easily do this in your Bibles. Just, you know, go, go to online program for the Bible program, just type in wrath in New Testament. You can do your own study. that over and over again, the New Testament warns us of the wrath of God that's coming. And that's why Jesus died, to rescue us from that wrath. But to believe in Jesus is more than a nod to God, oh yeah, I believe that. To believe in Jesus is to trust in him as your Lord, your King, your Savior, to come under his leadership, to stop doing wrong and start doing what's right and to come under his leadership so we'll be saved from, as Paul says, the wrath of God that's coming. And look what he says. You're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. What is he talking about? The judgment day when Jesus returns. The Bible calls the day when Jesus returns the day of God's wrath. With his righteous judgment will be revealed. And so what happens is we, we live in a culture today that wants to redefine God in our own image. And God is a God of love, not understanding that a God of love would always hold accountable. True love always does. Like as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, love does not rejoice in, unri- in righteousness, it rejoices in the truth. You can't create a new creation where everything is right and good and true and letting evil in that as far as if we either have to be transformed or we're going to be destroyed right. and so you see this throughout the new testament over and over again but just one great example from the book of hebrews uh, in the book of hebrews it's written to jewish christ followers who are considering abandoning jesus and going back to their old faith uh, to avoid persecution and in that context the writer says, if we deliberately keep on sinning, in other, words, reject when we, in other words, we're gonna reject Jesus, after we have received the knowledge of the truth about who he is, then no sacrifice for our sins is left. Jesus dying for us, and if you reject that he's the Messiah and the, that he's the ultimate atonement, for your sin, there is no more atonement. And all that's left is a fearful expectation of judgment and of the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And in that same book, the book of Hebrews, the author says this about Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yahweh and Jesus is the same God. And so all you see is these two sides of God, this amazing grace, and yet this accountability and so this leads to a great question for our life and there in your note sheet there's a section called the two sides of God the key question and so I I just have one question for you today as we reflect on what we've learned and the question is this which side of God do you need Uh, what I've found is that followers of Jesus we tend to embrace one side or the other and we really to thrive spiritually we need both sides We need to know the true God, not a truncated God. And so, um, like, for example, some of us here, the only God you know is the God of wrath. Like you've grown up or the story or whatever, and you're here today, and you really want a relationship with God, but deep down, you're afraid you can't have one, that you're not worthy of it, that based on what you've done or what's been done to you, that you're You're like Isaiah, I'm I'm unclean, I'm undone. And so you you want a relationship with God, but you're afraid that you've gone too far. And the good news of the gospel, the good news of Isaiah is that, no, you haven't. That if you want to come home, God is ready to sit down with you and to wipe your your record clean, though your sins are like, this is why he died that God has this reckless love for us. Like we sing in the song, right, that there's, there's no mountain he won't climb, there's no wall he won't kick down, there's no shadow that will stop him from coming after you. This is what we see all through the Bible, that God is this amazing God who is revealed to Moses, compassionate, gracious, abounding in love, ready to forgive, this is who he is. And for some of us here today, you're afraid because of the abortions you've had, because of the immorality you've been involved with, because of a murder you've committed, because of whatever your sin is, you're afraid you've gone too far that you can come, you can attend, you can sit on the back row, but you can never be part of the family of God. You can never be restored because you have gone too far. And to you, God says, come now, let us reason together. Let's have a meeting. Before you go to the judgment, before that day of judgment comes, before the day of wrath comes, let's sit down because I love you, I've been pursuing you, and I've made a way for you to come home. Though your sins are as scarlet, they can be white as snow. I want you, and I want you to eat the best of the land, and I don't care what you've done or where you've come from. I want to rescue you. And some of us here need to understand this amazing grace of God that will pursue us even at the cost of his own life. The creator being crucified to rescue his creation. But for others of us here, we need to recapture the fear of God. That we have Got this view of God that's so one-sided. God's my buddy. God's my best friend. God's my papa. He's my daddy, and I can get away with anything because my daddy would never let me down. And we bought it into this distorted view of Christianity. That we said a prayer when we were in twelve years old at camp, and we live like hell ever since. But praise God, I'm saved. And for you, you need to recapture the fear of God. You know, in Proverbs, it says the fear of God is the first step to wisdom. And can I tell you something? Fear means more than respect. It means fear. (laughs) You say, like, what do you mean? Well, remember Isaiah going face down, wetting his pants, in the presence of God, terrified, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips, I live amongst, the. I've seen the king, I'm, I'm, it's over for me. That is a picture of the fear of God. That we recognize who we're dealing with and what we've done. And that if we wanna come home, there's a way, and he's pursuing us, but you cannot buy him off with your religious ritual and and, and your religious participation. You don't get brownie points for that. He is not looking for flowers while you continue an affair. He's looking for a real relationship. And if you wanna come home and you wanna be restored and you want your land to stop being destroyed and you wanna eat from the best of the land, you cannot mistake his patience for weakness. The wrath of God is real. Amen? So which side do you need to embrace today so you can grow and thrive and run into the future God has for you? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your beauty and your glory. We thank you, God, that you are a God of wrath, not just of love. Because without your wrath, there would be no hope for a fallen, evil, destructive world. Sin would go unchecked in our lives, in creation. It would go from bad to worse. Culture would come apart. We thank you that you are committed not just to forgiving us, but restoring us and healing us. So we'd be the people that are created to be, that love you and love one another. Thank you that you will not be bought off by religious ritual Thank you that you're a God of integrity that calls us to real relationship, requires real repentance. And thank you, God, that you are a God who loves us so much, a reckless love running after us when we should be destroyed and being willing to climb any mountain, to kick down any wall, to blow through any shadow with your amazing light and amazing grace to rescue us. And so we pray as we worship you now, As we bring you our tithes, our gifts, our offerings, may you use these to build a place where the message of the true God goes out loud and clear, a message of amazing grace and impending wrath, that we would turn and be restored and healed, that we might eat the best of the land. We pray this in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen.